Well, good morning, Mercy Hill family. Guys, this is, uh, this is honestly a pretty surreal experience for me. Uh, if you've been a part of the Mercy Hill family for the last six, eight weeks or less, you may not know this, but you are, you're part of a larger family and you are surrounded and celebrated on a regular basis. Uh, it was 15, 16 months ago, I was in this city for the first time. And at that point, this was just a dream. And since then, guys, we have been praying for you as a team of people in Cedar Falls, Iowa, a city you probably never heard of before. But we've been praying for you. I've not known you by name, but I've just been praying for you that God would intersect your lives in powerful ways and bring you into a family and then would send you out from this place to be salt and life to the earth. And so that's pretty wild to see here, to see answered prayer before me. This is, this is wild. The other thing, though, that makes this a surreal experience is I'm looking into the faces of men and women that I frequently refer to as my heroes. I've got a list of names on my phone, 26 names of Ernie and Laura, Timmy and Lindsay, Seth and Maggie, Nate and Alex, Jared and Hannah, Luke and Olivia, Aaron and Emily, Bree, Sadie, Liv, Kara, Michaela, Cassie, Emma, Alyssa, Rachel, Hannah, Sarah, and Aaron. People that I frequently pray for, 26 people that we were able to send out from our church family to this city. And that doesn't even include everybody from other places, Ames and Texas and Louisiana and other heroes that I'm meeting, some I've met and that, that have come to this place that have left the comforts of friends and family and familiarity to move to a city where God was already at work, where there was already great churches and great things going on, but yet wanted to join into that work, recognizing there's a need in this city, particularly on the campus, to see God do something amazing. You moved here to just proclaim the greatness of Jesus. And uh, guys, what I give myself to in Cedar Falls, what you give yourself here is not about what we're doing today. It's, it's just praying, God, would you establish something that would last for over 100 years and beyond? Like, like what we're doing today, can you think of that? Like that Mercy Hill would be a consistent presence of proclaiming the greatness of Jesus for the next 100 years and beyond. You're helping to start that. I'm a part of that work, you're a part of that work, and hopefully God will strengthen this family and give you the ability to do what we've been able to do, which is to send people out to other places and to start great works. As now our church begins to pray about Indonesia and Syracuse and Ann Arbor and other places not yet to be named. And uh, I just wanna look my heroes in the eyes a bit and just let you know, like I often get the spotlight like one of my favorite quotes, though, is a Band of Brothers quote where they asked the guy, they said, are, are, do you consider yourself a hero? And he goes, ah, I'm not, a, I'm not a hero, but I served in a company of them. I'm really proud of you all and grateful for you. And I'm praying for God to strengthen you. It's a delight to read this text today because I get to end today praying this text over you. And uh, that is, uh, that's an honor. 
It's a real honor. If you've got a Bible, open up to Ephesians 3. We're going to be going through verses 14 and uh, 21. And this is the question. Actually, I wrote this question before I even thought about like my opening words to you, which now seems like sovereignly aligned. Because the question that I, I thought of as I, as I read these opening words here of Paul, when he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What, what caught my attention here and the question I wanted to ask you is I wanted to ask you, have you ever been so in awe of something that it knocked you off your feet? Like, have you ever been so in awe of something that it knocked you off your feet? Like, one of the things I'm in awe of is that, that like, Baker Mayfield has an NFL contract. Like, come on, can we, be, can we admit that? Where are my Bengals fans at? Hey, just so you know, the hatred for Baker Mayfield goes all the way back to Iowa. And I'm a Cyclone fan, so I, Big 12 bitterness still rages in me. Anyway. But no, more, more seriously, like when I thought about that question, like have I ever been so in awe of something that I, it knocked me off my feet? Actually, I thought of a number of memories, but one of those, just because I've got my son with me here today, was the birth of my firstborn. And it wasn't just the fact that God was blessing me with the joy of being a father for the first time. That in itself was wild, but it was also against the backdrop of the fact that 30 minutes earlier, we didn't even know if he was going to be alive. Like the, the contrast of emotions, like the overwhelming just like swing from hearing nurses say his feet are blue because his feet came out. That's backwards. And we can't get a heartbeat. And having to look your wife in the eyes in that moment and try to give her some courage when you don't know if you're going to go home parents that day. After nine months of just delight, celebration, and pulling your friends in and all that. And then when he came out, and you hear those just cries of life, just, I went into the bathroom, and I lost it. I couldn't get myself off the floor. Just in awe. Just in absolute awe. When we open to Ephesians 3 here, we're entering into a similar moment for Paul. It's one of those moments where he's so in awe, he's been knocked off his feet and he can't stand at this point. It's like, I have to kneel. I have to hit my knees before the Father. What's led him to this point, and you've been walking through these passages, you go back to Ephesians 2, what has just been overwhelming him to this point is the reality of just the reflection of just God's grace poured out of mankind. Right, that while we were dead in our sins, right, by nature, objects deserving wrath, like we can look around the world around us and think that everybody's living, everybody's alive because they're breathing. No, no, no. If God was standing next to us, pointing out the world, he'd say, they're not alive, breathing, yes, here today, gone tomorrow like a vapor. Everybody you see around you is spiritually dead unless they know Jesus. And Paul is reflecting on this, like we were dead. And this miracle took place that by grace, saving grace by faith that we receive in Christ, we are made alive. Moving from death to life, he's just pondering that. And, and now that is he's just overwhelmed by the reality of this grace, this grace that's been poured out that, that repairs the vertical relationship between God and man. He starts reflecting on how that then reshapes and redefines relationships horizontally. 
Grace doesn't just affect what happens vertically in our relationship with God as we're reconciled with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now all of a sudden, all our relationships horizontally are redefined and that people of all races and cultures, whatever previous dividing lines of hostilities were there, are gone. You know, one of the things I love to highlight for people is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Whether you've been good or bad or whatever other people want to say about you or anything about your skin color or where you came from, whether you're rich or poor, everybody comes before Jesus on level ground. And the only way that we're saved is through the same path, which is through the undeserved grace of Christ. No one deserves that any more than anybody else. And so that gives us a commonality with each other that we can look at one another and go, yeah, before I knew Christ, maybe that was a big deal. But now that we both know Christ, you're my brother, you're my sister. All of that has changed now. Paul's reflecting on all that, and then he goes to the next level, and then, he, then he's like, and what God is doing is he's bringing together his people, his bride, his family, this, this church made up of every tribe, tongue, and peoples, and nations. He's bringing them all together, and now we are the temple where God dwells. Understand how like mind-blowing this was for Paul as he was raised as a Jew. Imagine him sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with his friends who are Jews. They go, okay, so Paul, like, where's your temple? Like, if this is your new thing, like, where's your temple? And he goes, we don't have one. God dwells among us. Yeah, yeah, but but, like, where do your priests serve? And he goes, we don't have any priests. In fact, we are all now priests filled with the promised Holy Spirit that we are the priesthood of God. Okay, so no temple, no priest. So, so where do you make your sacrifices? And he goes, there's no longer any need for any more sacrifices. Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice for all mankind that has fully appeased the wrath of God. Like this is so mind-blowing. And he's writing this out to the Ephesian church to encourage them. And he gets to this point in the letter and he just goes, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And it just causes me to pause a bit and ask you just simply, when was the last time the grace of God put you in such a place of awe that you hit your knees? For me, this most commonly happens when I am painfully aware of my sinfulness, and then I open up God's word, and the Holy Spirit's speaks in unison with his word and God affirms his love for me. Again, it's that painful darkness followed by a quick contrast with just the affirmation of God that just overwhelms me. And so Paul being in this moment, guys, we get to eavesdrop in on a prayer. It's kind of cool. Like to see like what, what does Paul pray for when he prays? So we get to see this overflow moment, this awe, and what it erupts into is prayer, and we get to eavesdrop into it. And, and I, wanna, I wanna just highlight this real quick before we dive in. If you're like a pastor in the room or if you're a connection group leader or a leader of any sort, take note of what Paul prays for his people. Like we would be served well to, to like catch that. And if you're just in this room, not a leader, not a pastor, just just... Note here, like of all the things that Paul could ask for, this is what he asks for, okay? I want to read the text for us once again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. If you're taking notes, guys, Paul prays for two things, and then that those two things would result in something else. So he's going to pray for two things, and that those two things would result in something else. The first thing that he prays for is he prays, you can go back to verse 16 and circle this word, that they'd be strengthened, the power of the Spirit. Right, he, first of all, he prays for them to be strengthened through the power of the Spirit. You can note that word strengthened. This is wild. I actually just taught John 16 last weekend to our people back in Cedar Falls. But this is, this is wild. I mean, if you could ask Jesus what would be better for us, because I think you know how you'd answer this question, but it's like, Jesus, what would be better for us? Like you standing here, right here beside me, walking with me throughout all of life, or for you to put the Holy Spirit in me, which is better he would answer, because he does, it's actually better that I put my spirit in you than me walk beside you. That's wild. But he says that in John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. See, when Jesus was walking the earth, he was isolated to one location, one time, one group of people, but now he's made himself available to all people everywhere at all times fully available in the spirit. You go, praise God. This is a beautiful thing that, that when you surrender your life to Christ, when you recognize the reality of your sinfulness, the righteousness of God and the gap between and realize I'm not deserving of a relationship with God. I'm not deserving of heaven. I'm not deserving of being reconciled with God the Father. If you recognize that and recognize that God has paved the way, he's, he's paid and filled the gap with Christ, that if you trust Christ, you can be saved. What happens when you trust Christ is one of the things that God does is he puts his spirit in you in that moment, sealing you for the promise of redemption in a future day, giving you the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit that testifies that we ourselves are the children of God in that moment, filled with the spirit. And in that moment, we are given unbelievable potential. It's a key word, potential. A lot has already happened, and there's so much more that God yet wants to do. Yet sadly, this gift for us is often neglected. This is why I think Francis Chan's book is so rightly titled when he talks about the Holy Spirit. The title of his book is The Forgotten God. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit the incredible gift of the Spirit that God has given to us to do so many things for us. But one of the things the Spirit does is strengthen us. I think one of the best ways I can describe for you the beauty of the strength that the Spirit provides is by giving you a little like uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines before and after picture. Can we do that? Like we all love before and after pictures. If you've actually never been in this room before to see the before, like 
I've seen pictures of this room and thought, oh, that's a really nice space to meet. You should see what this looks like at 6.15 in the morning, particularly the bathrooms. Praise God for people that serve, my heroes that do that. Um, let me just do a little before and after. We're going to go back into to, to the spirit here and the strength that the spirit provides. If you go back into the gospel accounts, like when Jesus is walking the earth with, with his disciples, there's this key moment where begin, like Jesus begins to explain to them, I'm about to die. And his disciples are all around him. They're all like getting super tough. Particularly Peter's like, I'm going to be super tough. He's like, he's like, hey, like if everybody else deserts you though, like I'm going to stick with you to the end. And Jesus says to him, Peter, before the night's even over, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, I'll never do that. I will die for you. No. Guys, the disciples didn't even make it through one night without Jesus by their side. That was how long their strength lasted them. It's like a couple of hours. All tough there in the upper room. When they got outside of there, it was even a slave girl that looked at Peter and said, no, you're one of his disciples. He's like, no, 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 it wasn't me. Jesus said in John 16, 32, indeed an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to your own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. That's the before picture, right? That's that's. Peter, James, John, all the disciples without the Spirit of God in them. I'm just going to compare that real quick to a few weeks later. A few weeks later, the Holy Spirit's poured out this incredible moment in Acts 4. Let me just read this. I'm going to read a little bit here, but follow with me just this, this scene. It says, The next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. And after that, they had Peter and John stand before them and began to question them. So the same group of men that killed Jesus now have Peter and John standing before them. And the reason that Peter and John are before them is because Peter and John are on trial. And they're on trial because they just healed a guy that was disabled which I don't know why that's a bad news thing, like why that gets you in trouble, but they're in trouble and they're, they're being brought in. And this is the question that's being asked of them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was, note this, filled with the spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man and by what means he was healed, then let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's boldness. That's different than what we saw before. And note this, when they, when all those chief priests, leaders, elders, Pharisees, Sanhedrin who are watching this, when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. But it wasn't just that they had been with Jesus. There's, there's more here. I'll just... 
jump forward a little bit in the story because Peter and John get released and it says this, that after they were released, they went to their own people. They went and gathered with their brothers and sisters in Christ and reported to them everything that the chief, chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they all raised their voices together. All of God's people began to pray out, Master, you are the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit and by the mouth of our father and servant David, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against the Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant, whom you appointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. I know I'm reading a bunch here, but now don't miss this. They continue praying, and now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand with healing and signs and wonders that will be performed in the name of the holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled up again with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God boldly. Before the Spirit, after the Spirit. Same people, new courage, new spirit. Paul's praying for the Ephesians to be strengthened by the Spirit. This gift that God has given you is put in you, and he's praying for that Spirit to strengthen them. Do you ever pray that for the people that you pour into? Do you ever ask for people to pray for pour that for you. Maybe you need that. I think you do. That's the first thing that Paul prays for. The second thing that he prays is in verse 18. That you may have strength, note again, strength is mentioned again, but strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know. That's the second word. He's praying for them to be strengthened. He's also now he's praying for them to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Did you catch that? He wants them to comprehend something that is not comprehensible. That's insane. <laughs> I want you to know something that you can't know, can't possibly know. What he's trying to get to here, it, and it's, it's not this, so I'll, so I'll explain it this way. This is what he's not saying. He's not talking about organic chemistry. I don't know what class it is that like you've taken or are taking or have taken that at some point in life you sat in there and it's like, this is beyond my ability to know. For me, that was organic chemistry, which is why I switched over to another class and got an A minus on that one. And I was like, all the fools that thought that was the prerequisite, I got over here and found a shortcut. The reality of organic chemistry, though, was that that was a class that was beyond my comprehension. That's different than what he's talking about here, because he's not talking about something that's just beyond like my comprehension, because I'm kind of an idiot. This love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. There's not a single person on the face of the planet who has ever lived, who has ever been able to fully comprehend the love of God in Christ. And he just wants them to know like a sliver of it. That God would reveal for them just the incredible love that's poured out on them and just like, like grasp just a part of it. One of the things I'll often say about love 
That's like the most true statement I can say about love. I say, guys, I didn't know what love was until I was loved. Like I stood on my wedding day looking into the eyes of the most beautiful woman that God ever created and I thought that I knew what love was and when I was promising to love her forever like I thought I was like all in like I got it I know how to love you you love me all that Guys, what's wild is on that day when you're getting married for those who've been married you know this to be true for those who have not yet you'll experience this maybe someday you think you know what love is on that day you have no idea because on that day, my wife only knew like this much about me. And since then, she's gotten to know me a little bit more. She's seen my bursts of anger and other things I'm not proud of. She now knows that I snore. And that with each passing year, I become more and more like marshmallowy soft. <laughs> Which is why it blows me away that even in the midst of all of that, especially my sin, when I hate it, and yet it, it like overwhelms me again, she'll look me in the eyes and say, I love you. And I know I'm like, I don't deserve that. That's what I mean when I say like, I didn't know what love was until I got it, until I received it. Because my wife knows me better than any person on the planet could know a person. Like she, she knows me as well as anybody could. And the fact that I feel fully known by her and loved by her is incredible. But guys, understand this. My wife doesn't fully know me because she doesn't know every evil motive that has ever motivated my heart. She doesn't know every evil thought that's ever passed through my mind. But you know who does? God. And the fact that God fully knows me this goes beyond my wife, like fully knows me and yet communicates to me, regardless of all that I've done, that by grace and faith in Jesus, he looks at me and calls me his son. That's my boy. That's my girl. That blows my mind. God's love is so wide that it spans the entire earth. It's so long that it stretches from eternity to eternity. It's so high that it can raise a repentant person up into the holiest places. And it's so deep that it can reach down and grab any person in the midst of whatever sin they find themselves enslaved to. And it's so vast that I have to pray that you would even be able to understand a part of it. That's the love of God in Christ. You ever prayed that for somebody? Not just that they'd be strengthened by the Spirit, but that they would be able to understand the incomprehensible incom love of God. Even just a sliver of it. But he prays those two things. They'd be strengthened by the Spirit. They'd be able to know the incomprehensible love of God that it would result in something else. There's twice in this passage that he uses the phrase that or so that. You can notice in verse 17, so that, right? I'm praying this so that this would happen. He does it again in verse 19, that. And what he's praying is that these things would result in this. So that, verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts. In verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
I'm praying that that potential that we talked about, that with the Spirit of God being in you, that you have so much potential, I'm praying for that to be realized, that you would experience the fullness of God, that Christ would dwell in your hearts. The word dwell literally means to take up residence. What he's wanting for here is that Christ would take up residence in our life and begin to invade every cell within our body further and further, fuller and fuller. This dwelling that he's praying for in them is meant to be redefining. It's meant to change everything. The best way I can describe this, I think this morning, is to tell you a little bit more about myself. My name is Cody Michael Klein, full name. Michael, my middle name, is actually given to me because my dad's name is is Mike. So every time I say my full name, I'm reminded of my dad. But there's a special power that my mom has in my life because if my mom ever yells out or calls me on the phone and drops Cody Michael Klein, which my wife has not yet done this. I'm, I'm like, the day that she drops that on me, I will probably faint, okay? So... But when somebody yells out like your full name, it, it, it hits you in a different way, right? Like, like, so I hear Cody Michael Klein, my ears perk up. I'm like, yep, what's up? Because I know that that's me. Because one of the beautiful things that happens when we surrender our life to Christ is we are un- united with Christ and we're given a new name. That's why you guys are you're doing baptisms. One of the ways I love describing baptisms is baptisms is at its core, it's a naming ceremony. And here's what I mean, that in reflection of us being united with Christ, when we're baptized, what Matthew 28 calls us to is to baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That as you stand in those waters as Cody Michael Klein, sinner that he is, and then go under those waters and come out, it is me, the picture of baptism is that I'm dying to who I once was, and as I'm coming out of those waters, I'm being raised to life in Christ. And the name that's proclaimed over me is of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And I'm no longer defined by the fact that I'm Cody Michael Klein. I am Christ. He has made me totally new. And he is dwelling in me by the power of his spirit, has brought me into union with himself, unshakable union. And all that I was and all that I am and all that I will be has completely changed It's completely changed. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I don't live anymore, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When we are united with Christ, it doesn't mean that he now becomes the adjective to our life, that I'm a Christian CPA, I'm a Christian nurse, I'm a Christian basketball player, I'm a Christian student, I'm a Christian school teacher, I'm a Christian husband or father or mother or daughter. It changes everything about us that that's just what we are. I'm not a Christian anything. I am just in Christ and everything else has dropped off. I've been made into a new creation. Have you experienced the grace of God like that? Have you experienced union with Christ like that that has redefined everything for you? 
American Christianity wrongly assumes that that type of relationship with Jesus is some sort of like spiritual inheritance. I'm just gonna tell you this right now. Coming to Mercy Hill this morning does not give you this redefining relationship with Christ. Reading your Bible later today will not give you this redefining relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. What does it take to have Jesus dwell in your heart like this? Notice these words here in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through, what is it? Faith. Faith is the opposite of works. Faith is trusting somebody else to do it for you. Faith is actually sitting on your hands, doing nothing, contributing nothing, and going, I have to actually trust you to do that for me. And Jesus is looking at you going, yeah, trust me. If you've never trusted in Christ, do it now. That Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith and redefine everything about you. And then would you pull people around you and pray for you that now that you've been filled with the Spirit, that you would realize the full potential that God has put in you for you, the Spirit would continue to work, that you continue to know what's incomprehensible. This is what the Christian life is, guys. It, it begins with a work of the Spirit that then moves to an understanding of the love of God, that then moves to a redefined life. But it also continues as God continues to work through the Spirit to help you know the love of Christ that surpasses understanding and continues to do a great work in your life. The way that it starts is also the way that it continues and it keeps moving. Guys, is there any part of this that you need to be praying for other people? And honestly, is there any part of this that you need others to be praying for you? Ask them. But lastly... I want to hit these final two verses. This is probably my favorite part of the whole text. But notice Paul's posture as he prays. This to me is like the biggest takeaway. Just notice his posture when he prays. Let me just read these final words. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. I want to highlight Paul's posture by talking about my favorite holiday. And I'm going to go like wide right and we're going to come back. I promise you this will land. <laughs> Guys, my favorite holiday is coming up. Can you guess it? Oh, Halloween. <laughs> Guys, I love Halloween. And if some of you are like, you're a Satan worshiper, I'm like, I'm totally not. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> I love Halloween. Like, I, I just love, like, like, watching my kids get all dressed up and, like, running all over the neighborhood with their friends and getting candy. Like, it's just, it's so fun. And I love, like, walking behind them and, like, meeting neighbors and talking to people. The weather's typically beautiful. I mean, there's just so much about Halloween, like, I absolutely love. And then we all come back to the house. I'm like, oh, you guys have been up late. You need to go back to bed and all that. And then I eat all their Twixes. It's perfect. <laughs> it's literally the perfect holiday. But I don't know if you guys grew up and have some of these memories. Like, I still remember as a kid going around on Halloween and knowing which houses I wanted to go to and which houses I wanted to avoid. 
There was always this one lady in my hometown of Elgin, Iowa, a town of 500, which we knew everybody. Stuff like this, like, just irks you forever, and you never forgive somebody for it, not in a small town. But there's always this one lady that, like, when we went to her house, she didn't hand out candy. She handed out, like, like the change jar. But the worst part is, I, I swear to you, she must have, like, gone through and pulled out, like, everything larger than a penny. Like, she just, like, took all the good stuff out. Like, I'm not giving that away. Nickel? <laughs> Some kid thinks they're going to rob from me. And she'd just hold out, like, a penny jar. Like, here you go. And then the worst thing was, you'd, like, reach for it, and every time she's like, just one. I'm like, <laughs> what are we doing here? Guys, I, I went to that house once, maybe twice, thinking that, like, she would change her tune. And when she didn't, I never went back to that house again. I'm like, I don't need that in my life. She's too stingy. She needs her money more than I do. We're going to be fine. Five-year-old self was thinking that. I guarantee Sadly, though, some of us enter before God in prayer and approach him like he's like that. That he's like the penny lady. I don't want you to approach God like that. Paul doesn't approach God like that. Approach God like my kids approach Dan the bear man's house. Two houses over from our house right now lives Dan the bear man. His name's Dan Fensel. He's awesome. He's in my Friday morning men's group, 77 years old. I tell my wife, he is my life goal. I'm like, if you want to know what my life goals are? Just look at him. He's 77 years old. He mows his yard every other day with his shirt off, just driving his John Deere mower. Like, and he's the most generous guy that I know. Like, I just absolutely love everything about Dan. I'm like, I want to be that when I grow up. Dan, the other day, came to our house. He had gone up into Wisconsin and got these, like, apple cider donuts, which are, like, it's like trading gold in our neighborhood. And he brought a box over, and he used this phrase. It, it, it was amazing to me to hear him say this. He goes, hey, I brought these back for my kids. I don't know why that's making me emotional, but it was. Like, was. It's like he's talking about my kids, and I love that. Dan will regularly stand out in our neighborhood and look at our, at our neighborhood when the kids are out playing, and he's like, I love this. And I wish that every kid in America could grow up in a neighborhood like this. And it's the way that it is because of Dan's generosity. As Dan, on Halloween, just to compare him to the penny lady, hands out, <laughs> hands out king-size candy bars. He does. It's amazing. If you drive to Cedar Falls on Halloween night, he'll give you one. Like, he knows he's being taken advantage of. Like, our, our neighborhood becomes so busy because it just fills up with cars of people driving from all over town just to come to Dan the Bear Man's house. And then they leave, like, right after that with the king-size candy bar. Last year, he had extras, so he just brought them over to our house, and he's like, hey, these are for your kids. Like, what a like, gold mine jackpot moment, right? Because Dan loves to give like there's no tomorrow. He's like constantly flipping his hands up like, what can I do? Guys, Paul, as he hits his knees, he's overwhelmed by the grace of God and how God is bringing together a people of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation to breaking down dividing walls of hostility. He's making us into be the temple of which he dwells. 
And he's praying for these people that God would strengthen them by the Spirit, that they would understand just a sliver of his love for them and that they would be filled with the fullness of all that God is. He's praying all of this and all of this as he's praying is just covered and surrounded by the fact that he knows that he has a father who loves to say yes. Loves to say yes and then give above and beyond what we could ask, dream, or imagine. Are you gonna pray for that? Here's a little bit more. That's what God loves to do. Do you pray with that confidence? Guys, I don't often. I don't. But we should. And my delight today is actually to use this text to pray these words over you. I'm so honored to be able to do this. So I know I'm over on time, but I'm gonna take a few more minutes if that's okay. But church, would you, would you join me just hitting your knees with me and just praying these words? So find a little space. If you can and you're comfortable to get on the floor, we're just gonna go to Ephesians 3 and read these words together. Father God, we kneel before you. You are our Father. That's why when this text talks about that every one of us has derived our name from you, it's because we've been renamed, we've been claimed, been redefined, renewed, made new. God, we kneel before you pleading, and I plead for this church. I pray for everybody here this morning and everybody who will yet be a part of this church family that you would strengthen them by your spirit, your promise, Holy Spirit, that's poured out richly upon us, that yes, we can resist, we can push him away, but God, if we will repent of that, if we stop resisting him, he will work mightily within us to lead us into holiness, to give us a boldness, to give us courage, to give us words to say when we don't know what to say it. It's not a spirit of timidity, but a one of power, not a spirit of slavery to make us fall back into fear, but a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. A spirit that himself guarantees that we will be renewed and redeemed on a future day. A spirit that continues to move in us, convicting us of sin and leading us into greater holiness and a spirit that empowers us for works that are beyond ourselves. God, I pray for this church and I will be strengthened in the spirit, but to know your love in a special and fresh way today, this week, this month, this year, this decade, this century, to know your love in a unique way that continues to overwhelm us and put us back on our knees in awe, to recognize that there's no sin in our life that has not already been covered and paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so we don't have to be afraid to confess that sin and bring it into the light for fear of what it may mean. But to know that you've already forgiven it and we just wanna walk clean and in the light. And so there's sin that needs to be confessed today. God, by your love, draw us out to be real, to put it before you and to let you wash us and make us clean, Lord Jesus. And we pray for your fullness, 
that the strength of your spirit and the knowledge of your love would mean a greater dwelling of you within our lives, that you would invade even more of our hearts, even more of our minds, even more of our bodies, even more of our lives, of our schedule, of our bank accounts, that would free us up, that would loosen the bonds of previous life, that we would live out more and more what it means to be to be new in you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for making a home within us. Thank you for the gift that it is to have you in us, not beside us. And Father, we do, we ask all these things with such a vibrant confidence, knowing that you love to give way beyond what we could ever ask, dream, or imagine. And so, yes, we've seen you do mighty things, but this is just the beginning. It's just a foretaste. It's just a a spark of encouragement at the front of a race to remind us that you are going to continue to sustain us, to guide us, to direct us, to protect us. And most importantly, you will carry us to the finish line. And so we don't finish in our strength. We don't run in our own strength. We run in the strength that you provide day by day. And God, you're going to keep us dependent. You're not going to overwhelm us with all of that strength in one day, but continue to keep us needy, continue to keep us on our knees. But you will continue to provide as we ask. And so God, we will cry out to you and I cry out to you for this church, for these people, for this city, for this campus, for your glory. Amen.